0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR 855 AM Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true that if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change.
1: Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent... Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at BeyondZeroEmissions dot org. And
2: welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show here on a Monday night. In this episode, Vivian takes us to a Sydney University community meeting. It's about how the divestment campaign is stigmatising carbon business. It's about stranded assets and the latest thing in renewable energy. First up, you will hear from Oxford University economist and environmentalist Ben Caldicott. He's also director of the Stranded Assets Programme then Kenny, activist and CEO of 350.org in Australia, Blair Palazzi, who we've had on the show before, and lastly, Giles Parkinson, journalist, uh, writing currently for the online magazine Renew Economy, and uh, in a previous life he has been, amongst other things, business editor and deputy editor of the Finn Review. Then lastly in the show, we'll hear from Stephen Bygrave in an interview I recorded with him yesterday. He's in Europe and we'll hear how what the view from view Europe is like and how things are shaping up for the Paris Climate Talks. But first up, here's the Sydney University Community Meeting with Ben Caldicott.
1: Have you told your bank and your super fund that you don't want them investing in coal, oil and gas? If you're not convinced, listen to tonight's talk from Sydney University. Thank you to them for sending me a copy of a wonderful talk by Ben Caldicott, an economist, Blair Pelasi, who's the head of 350.org in Australia, and Giles Parkinson, the magnificent editor of Renew Economy. As Blair says, we don't have to delay all new fossil fuel projects for very long because renewables are fast becoming cheaper and a less risky investment. Divestment now is stigmatising the companies and making it harder for them to get finance and political influence, so keep on divesting. Now I hope you enjoyed this talk and welcome any feedback about divestment, stranded assets and renewable energy.
3: Ben is the Director of the Stranded Assets Program at the Smith School of Enterprise and Environment at the University of Oxford. Uh, In addition to this role, Ben is also an advisor to the Prince of Wales International Sustainability Unit and an academic visitor at the Bank of England. Ben specialises in environment, energy and sustainability issues working at the intersection between finance, government, civil society and academia. Prior to joining the Smith School, he was Head of Policy at Investment Bank Climate Change Capital where he ran the company's research center and advised clients and funds on the development of policy-driven markets. He's also worked at a range of other organizations, including the think tank Policy Exchange, Bloomberg New Energy Finance, and as a deputy director in the strategy directorate of the UK's Department of Energy and Climate Change.
4: Great. Well, thank you, um, thank you Chris, for that very So the first thing is that uh, the act of divesting doesn't actually affect the share price directly. Um, the direct impact is, is minimal. There's also a bit of downside risk if you're concerned with climate outcomes in the sense that um, if you get a progressive investor to divest, that voice isn't then represented on the board. So you can get a progressive CalPERS or Norwegian Global Pension Fund or whoever it might be and because divested, they have divested, they then don't have that positive influence on, on the company. So, those are the, so that's, that's one downside risk. Um, However, our research found that um, the indirect impacts of divestment, particularly via stigmatization and no doubt Blair will talk a bit about some of these issues, um, can have a very significant impact on the companies through increasing their cost of capital, by making their access to capital harder, by, by affecting their customer relationships, by undermining their political influence, which is for an energy company really very important and by harming things like recruitment and retention. So it does have an impact, it's just not a direct impact from selling your share. Um, Now, going back to the, linking this to the engagement divestment piece, um, the ability of a fossil fuel company to change its business model is actually quite limited. So I think the effect that progressive investors have on fossil fuel companies is not so much in, you know, Calpa's, engaging progressively is not gonna shift Shell's business model into a completely different area. What they will do is improve its corporate governance, they'll minimize, you know, the bonds they pay in different markets in which they operate. They'll improve their health and safety. Um, and they might improve their responses to local spills, to remediation, those sorts of things. So progressive investors do have an impact, but it's it's limited to those things, which that's not to say those aren't important, they are important, but you know Engage, we want to change these business models through engagement is the point that I'm trying to, to make. Um, so I guess the argument that, you know, the big downside risk of you know, divestment versus engagement is that you're taken out these progressive, com- these progressive investors. That's true, but the progressive investors are only having impact on a limited number of things, not on the underlying, underlying business model. The other thing to quickly mention, I'm probably already out of time, is that um, uh, active ownership engagement is less effective without the credible threat of divestment, um, which sort of seems obvious but uh, you know, is worth um, underlining. Uh, you've got investor relations departments as the big companies who are very adept at running rings around um, investors. So, if you don't, as an investor, if you aren't, if you don't have a clear you know, red line, you don't have that credible threat, then your ability to shift behavior through engagement is diminished. So, that's another, another reason why keeping divestment on the table is important. It helps to hone, it helps to sharpen um, the effect of effectiveness of engagement efforts. Um, and so, uh, to the, li- the limited extent that engagement can affect the behavior of a fossil fuel company, um, Divestment will make it more the threat of divestment will make it more effective as a result. Um, and then the other thing to mention is that from from our experience of interacting with lots of investors on these, these issues, the divestment campaign has done something very positive, which is put it on the agenda of pension funds and asset owners around the world um, in a way that wasn't the case before. So as a result of beneficiaries of people that are going to benefit from pension funds writing in. Um, Board members and others have gone. Oh, we've got to. We need to deal with all these letters, and that sort of percolates up, and then actually becomes a, uh, you know, a bit of a it becomes a board issue, and it's on the agenda, and people go, well, oh. uh, they start thinking about it, and um, and if, if if they're guided in the right way, that can be very helpful because you know investors will actually not um, like the quite binary, um, static question that the campaigners are asking for, which is, divest from all fossil fuels today or you're rubbish, you know. You know. But investors, that kind of question isn't useful to an investor, it's kind of quite an annoying question. But if, but, a, but a better question um, is, you know, this is a long-term risk management issue, carbon risk is a real problem, climate change is a real problem, how are you going to manage that problem over the long term, uh, what, what might you do if other people act? Um, what process are you going to have in place to measure your exposure to this risk? What what strategies could you employ to shift capital away from these risks? Um, and and that's a very constructive conversation, and that's a conversation that's happening around the world. Um, and despite the fact that kind of a binary, static campaigning question isn't the right question, actually, it's a <laughs> it's prompted. This, this better set of questions um, and then uh, just very quickly I when when talking about dive talking about strand assets we've had a very UK USA Australia you know conversation so there is a lot of the world that needs to be brought in a lot of assets are state-owned 80 90 percent assets are in fact state-owned they aren't listed so how do we have those conversations with owners of those those investments with the states that have those investments how do we talk to the Saudi Arabians and the Venezuelans of the world um, and then just from my experience at the university I don't think this is something that's just going to um, to die away very quickly it's got legs there's momentum there's depth um, it's not you know, students won't just graduate and, and they'll get jobs and forget about it. Um, 350 and Blair and others have been very effective at creating cadres of people that will press this issue. In the run-up to Paris, and long, long beyond that. So I think from an investment perspective, um, you do have to, to look at that.
5: Thank you, Ben.
1: to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show from 3CR in Melbourne. We're bringing you a talk from Sydney University about divestment, stranded assets and renewable energy futures.
3: Uh, So I'd like to introduce our next speaker, Blair Palais. Blair is CEO of 350.org in Australia and has been at the front line of moves here and overseas to encourage major superannuation funds, local governments, religious organisations and universities uh, to divest from fossil fuel investments.
6: thank all of you for coming and uh, you know, taking an interest in the subject on a you know, weeknight. You could have gone out to the pub, but here you are hearing about stranded assets, divestment and renewables. Um, if we could just get the rest of the country and maybe our Prime Minister to do a bit of that, we could really come a long way. I mean, we're, we're sitting in potentially the what could be the renewable poster child of the world if we just shift maybe 5% of our interest in solving the problem instead of pretending it's not happening. So I just want to talk a little bit about the divestment campaign, how it developed and why, and in particular focus that point on moving that 5% of thinking, because it's not uh, 100% we're trying to shift, it's a little bit very fast, and in particular um, understanding, as, as Giles will talk about, how quickly renewables are coming onto the market at a parity cost. Uh, We don't have to delay new fossil fuels in particular forever. We only have to delay them for a short time in order to make it irrelevant to continue to invest in them. So I think that's critical to think um, in terms of the strategy that we thought about. How will we make a difference on climate change in a world where there's slow to act, limited amounts of policy in key countries. uh, And this is one way where individuals can get active, step in and and make a contribution. So I won't spend hours and hours giving you um, total, you know, deep into the detail, and and Ben's covered a good bit, but it's worth just mentioning the maths. Um, Bill McKibben was here in 2013 on a tour that talked just about this, and uh, delivered a Rolling Stone article that kind of shifted public thinking by making it very simple to understand what we're up against when it comes to climate change. The only number the world has ever agreed to Uh, through international negotiations to try and stop climate change at two degrees. Haven't gotten any further than that in the detail. We're hoping Paris might be the place. Uh, And then scientists have come in and backed up that 550 gigatons is about all we've got left in our emissions bank, as it were, before we tip past that two degree mark. Unfortunately, as Ben alluded to, uh, money invested in in reserves of fossil fuels is, is already at 2860. So we're looking at uh, some numbers that just don't match up. So we're talking about money that's already invested, ready to go. Shell Oil, BP are ready to go out, continue developing. Uh, Adani here in Australia, Whitehaven Coal. These are new mines or you know, newly coming to the market. We've invested in them, we're ready to go. So that's a problem. Problem number one. So the key here is five times more oil, coal, and gas than than we can burn. 80% of what we have in reserve has to stay in the ground. So that's gonna be tricky from a market-based economy point of view to tell people, yep, we've got that, but we just can't use it if we wanna continue to have a livable planet. And here in Australia, leadership, as it were, is going completely in the wrong direction on climate. All of you are highly aware of that, I'm sure. Uh, we've scrapped the carbon tax, one of the first in the world, um, already evident in showing a reduction in emissions even in just the short two years that it had to, uh, to make a go. That is, Tony Abbott, not long ago, told us that coal is good for humanity. Uh, I beg to differ. I think it's time we get off of it. We're going to have to make a rapid change out of that. You're going to have to start with a Prime Minister whose mind moves beyond that to, gee, how are we going to deal with this problem? Uh, Giles can go on for hours about the rent, but you know how many ways can we tell renewable energy companies we just don't want you here? Uh, we had pulled the rug out from under them about 15, maybe 20 times. Giles, can you give us a number when you come up on how many times we've shifted the rate on, you know, what we're we're encouraging or not? We're changing the number we want to target. We don't want to target. Uh, there's just no market certainty for people to try and enter this market, and it's been a real struggle. Uh, of late, the new direct action policy paper is looking at voluntary pollution penalties for uh, the ho- top 140 polluters, so we, don't, we know historically that really works. Uh, when you make something voluntary, everybody just jumps to it and really goes to work, so you know, no worries there. Uh, so enter uh, the divestment movement, because if we're getting no leadership, we'll have to do it ourselves. So we're looking at, wow, what can everybody do? Well, everybody has a bank account, a pension fund, a mortgage in some cases, Uh, They might be involved in a church. They might go to a university or have graduated from a university. This starts to cover a pretty big group of people in the world, in the West in particular. So we started looking at all of these things. How can we set up a system to help people first learn about it and then take action by moving their money out of fossil fuels? As Ben said, it's initially not about the money. It's about taking away the social license to operate as a fossil fuel company because we know we just can't continue growth in fossil fuels. So looking to apartheid as an example, it was extremely successful Uh, and Bill McKibben tells the story of after the end of apartheid, the first place that uh, Nelson Mandela went when he traveled out of the country was not to Washington but was to California. To thank the universities for backing the apartheid uh, divestment campaign so it's an example it was effective it was quick this is moving much quicker than that and we can do more and we can do better um, just worth uh, mentioning how important the financial sector has been in talking about divestment uh, in taking steps and even recommending that companies do it uh, World Bank for instance uh, but FTSE joining with BlackRock uh, to just begin to tell people about fossil fuel um, risk is a great step to help people understand their risk uh, and a few others just mentioned there are in Australia also looking at these are groups that have either moved some money uh, or are recommending to, to their, um, their investors that they begin to manage the risk and look for options to manage the risk. And almost, almost done, but I just wanted to mention that in a leadership like Desmond Tutu coming out for divestment, um, is critical, it, it certainly sends a message that it's a moral campaign as well as a financial one, the morality of, you know, can you still be invested in a safe fund with your money there, if you care about climate change, and also if you think about the risk and you know that the risk will make an impact at some point, um, and if you can do something about it now, why wouldn't you take the step? Um, recently, The Guardian has announced a campaign with uh, 350 in particular to push the two largest foundations in the world, um, the Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Foundation, to divest from fossil fuel. Uh, and that, that campaign is really just kicked off in the last three or four weeks, so uh, The Guardian is likely to, to really hammer the divestment campaign uh, over the next six or eight months and raise you know, stories, more stories about where it's happening, how it's happening, how, it's happening, how it can be done. So that's kind of the wrap for me. I just want to say um, it's been a great ride. It's been an education in how to do it, why to do it, um, why people care about it, and how they find their own ways to act, whether it's from inside initially to moving their money, cutting up their credit cards in front of a bank at Global Divestment Day, we just had one a few weeks ago. It was fantastic. It's important, I'll leave it to Giles to talk about renewables, but where do we go next? So you've moved your money, what to next? Um, Certainly helping people to find ways to reinvest into renewables, clean tech, and other solutions instead of um, just moving it anywhere uh, is certainly the next challenge for uh, how we as a campaign begin to look for leadership, encourage it, uh, encourage innovation, investment innovation. Um, And it's just worth mentioning that a big part of our job as part of the campaign is to educate fund managers, super funds and banks about the risk, about how fast the campaign's moving and to help speed up the transition. So we um, are not saying fossil fuel divestment completely or nothing get attacked. We're looking for anyone who will take any step to show that it can be done, that it can be done more quickly and that there's a reason to do it and a way to do it. So thanks very much and uh, if you're interested, follow the campaign online or find out ways you yourself can divest your, your money and your investments and uh, be part of the effort to find a solution.
2: And that's Blair Pelays, CEO of 350.org at Sydney University Community Meeting. Preceding Blair was uh, Ben Caldecott, an economist and environmentalist and director of the Stranded Assets Program. As uh, Blair was exhorting us then, towards the end, uh, everyone can get on and do something with divestment. The Guardian's running a very big promotion at the moment to get the Gates Foundation and the Welcome trust to divest and they have an online petition which was running at about 180,000 people when I heard a few days ago. So at the the very least, you could get online and sign that petition. Uh, I've got, I think, a short grab from Adrian Borengaba regarding stopping Adani.
3: (laughs)
7: My name is Adrian Burugaba. We're at a crucial time in history now where these great mega mines are coming to us and asking us as the traditional owners of the land to sign away our uh, native title, rights and interests to that land. These mines are, are very dangerous and they're detrimental to not only just the environment, but the the laws and customs that you know are are based in that land that are very important to the Wangan and Jagalingu people. The most important thing is for us to maintain our cultural integrity. Some of these mines will be here right into the future 40, 50, 60 years from now. We could lose our identity. We're going to make every effort to stop this mining company from destroying our land. I'm going to convince all of our people to stand together as one people and one voice And then we're gonna ask all Australian people and people from all over the world to stand with us and unite with us to fight this fight. This is not an easy fight for us. And we're asking everybody to stand with us to stop these mines from destroying this land. We don't need this coal. We don't need them. We don't need their money. We need them to leave our land alone. We need to protect that land. Our forefathers, my father and then grandfather, they had their, their money. They had their wages garnished and money taken off them, and so there was no inheritance for us. And all we've got left now is our inheritance is the land, and that's our responsibility.
2: okay and we'll go back to sydney university now for the last for the third and last speaker which is giles parkinson parkinson a journalist currently writing for the online magazine renew economy talking about divestment
1: we're bringing you a talk from sydney university about divestment stranded assets and renewable energy futures.
3: Our speaker tonight is Giles Parkinson, who's founder and editor of the excellent online publication Renew Economy, Um, Australia's leading website on clean technology and climate issues. He's a former former deputy editor of the Australian Financial Review uh, and a former columnist to The Australian. Giles is perhaps one of the most well-informed people in the country, I'd I'd argue, on the fast-moving developments in the renewable energy space. Uh, particularly uh, the increasing cost competitiveness of solar and wind energy in disrupting fossil
5: fuel um, economies. So please welcome Giles to the stage. This is Georgetown, Texas, um, a city of about 55,000 people, right in the heart of uh, West Texas, right in the heart of the oil, um, the oil industry, and uh, these crazy hippies, as you can see, have just um, announced that they're going to go 100% renewables. Um, not in five years or in ten years' time, but in two years time, uh, they, um, the council the people, the, um, the, uh, the city uh, council, which owns the local utility, uh, had to renew its contract and it looked to see what was the cheapest alternative and it decided that, without a doubt, it was a wind and solar. So they signed a the contract for about one hundred and forty megawatts of wind to be built nearby. And just last week, uh, 150 megawatts of solar. I Maybe mean, it was the other way around. So they've basically said, look, we're not particularly greenies here. Not, we're not fussed about We don't really believe that much in climate change. But the reason why we're doing this is that it's actually cheaper, and it makes sense. So they're not going for 10% or 20% or 30% renewables. They're going 100% renewables, and they'll be doing it within two years. And there's other cases of that in America as well, um, particularly even in Texas, Austin, Texas, has a commitment to go 50% renewables by 2030 and basically for the same reason. So that's pretty exciting. Um, another oil town is Dubai. Um, I was there in the end of January, um, well actually at Abu Dhabi, but it's all part of the United Arab Emirates. And while I was there the big talk was this 200 megawatt solar plant tender that has just been completed. Um, it will be the first big solar plant in uh, the Gulf states and it will be built at the cheapest price ever for a solar plant, less than six cents a kilowatt hour. And the significance of that is that it's about one-third the cost of gas generation, which is what they use at the moment for 99% of their electricity. And they go, uh-huh, that's pretty interesting. Um, a couple of weeks later, the, um, the National Bank of Abu Dhabi said, well, basically, we are making a big change towards renewables. The coal, the oil price, as we all know, has fallen dramatically. And they said, at this price of solar, even if oil came down to ten dollars a barrel, which is about one quarter of where it is now, probably one fifth, it still can't compete with solar. And so, what it was talking about was this massive change that um, they think is inevitable. And it's interesting to talk to the people in Abu Dhabi, um, the Energy Minister gave a speech talking about let's end fossil fuel subsidies. There's a guy from Saudi Arabia who's saying, well, our plan is to export solar to Europe, not just oil. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Saudi Aramco, which is the biggest oil company in the world, said that it will be putting solar PV on all its installations. and. Um, the, um, and I talked to interviewed the guy that was um, who runs the company that's going to be building this 200 megawatt solar plant. It's not a Mickey Mouse company. It's worth 25 billion dollars. It's got a generation portfolio, um, which is half the size of Australia's entire grid. And he said that um, there'll be a huge amount of generation built in the Gulf and um, the Middle East and North Africa over the next 10 years. About 140 gigawatts. That's about three times the size of Australia's grid and more than half of it will be solar. It will be solar PV and it will also be solar thermal, the solar towers with storage which are now coming in. And together he said that will provide basic electricity at cheaper than anything we can do with fossil fuels. And it's just a bit of a no-brainer for them to go in the future. And that's actually a good thing. One of the reasons why the Saudis will do this, the Saudis, for instance, um, burn... Well, 55% of their electricity needs comes from oil. And that's way too expensive. So what they're looking at doing now is to increasingly have wind. Well, not, there's not much wind in, in Saudi Arabia, but solar, so that they have actually more oil to um, export overseas. And you may think that's a bad thing, but it's actually quite a good thing. The, um, the Saudis have been, and the other Gulf states have been keeping up the supply of oil, uh, which has pushed the uh, price down. Um, their oil is cheap, but it's also clean. And when you bring the big price of oil down, what you're also doing is stopping the investment happening in the Arctic region, and in the oil sands, and northern all the deep water reserves, which are horrendously expensive, but are also horrendously polluting. So, as long as we've got cheap um, oil and, um, and cleaner oil from, from the Gulf region, that's probably actually a good thing for the planet, because oil production is not going to disappear entirely. Um, Elsewhere, similar things are happening. In Chile, um, they're building solar plants now with no contracts, just basically on the merchant market. This solar plant has been built to supply electricity to the biggest copper mine in Chile. Um, Those miners have no fears about um, about renewable energy. Um, And it's basically cheaper than any other option they have. The interesting thing about that, that um, solar plant actually been, is actually being it's now 40% owned by Origin Energy of Australia, <laughs> who um, know the deal when they see one. Um, so basically, the story is is that any country which needs to build new generation is finding that renewables, wind and solar, are a cheaper option than coal or gas. Deutsche Bank came out with a report a couple of um, a month ago or so, and they noted that in India. The price differential from solar to coal four years ago was seven to one. Now it's one to one. That's an extraordinary change in four years. And India now has a target of building 100 gigawatts of solar over the next five years. Um, China have got the similar target, 100 gigawatts by 2020, actually a bit quicker than India. I'm not too sure if solar is cheaper than coal at the moment in China, but what the Chinese are doing at the moment is they're adding in the environmental impacts of coal. So they're banning basically coal-fired generation in a lot of the eastern cities. The last one will close down in Beijing um, later this year. So once you add in the environmental impacts, um, there's, no, there's no question that it's, um, that it's cheaper. And it's also to point out that the International Energy Agency says that solar and wind uh, the best answer to address all the problems with the one billion people around the world who don't yet have access to electricity. And I'm going a bit slower than I thought I would. Australia, that's going really slow at the moment. We've um, heard renewable energy target, thanks to the Abbott government or since the Abbott government came in, has basically come to a, a, a stop, simply because of uncertainty and a lot of pressure from the you know, fossil fuel country companies to um, wind back the renewable energy targets. What this picture is of is the Nincoln Solar Farm. This um, is basically being built based on subsidies on a program that was uh, produced by Labor. It was a pretty badly conceived program, but at least got this one built. Um, and there's a couple of other solar farms and wind farms which will happen around the ACT. We've got a very progressive government. Um, and apart from that, really nothing's happening in Australia. It's come to a complete stop. Um, which is pretty sad, and today, actually, Banco Santander, which is the uh, Spanish bank, is the biggest bank in Europe by market capitalisation, it's the biggest lender to renew, financial renewable energy um, developments in the world, and even announced today it was packing up and leaving Australia because it's um, sick of place and it's got better business to do elsewhere, and that's pretty sad. Um, this is supposed to be a picture of a house with panels. Even though the large-scale targets come to a... large-scale buildings come to a halt, There's a big revolution happening what's called behind the meter and on rooftops. Australia, despite the government, is the biggest installer of um, rooftop solar in the world. We're now at penetration rates of 25-26% in South Australia and Queensland. Um, 1.3 million houses have rooftop solar. They're finding it is about half the price of uh, grid-provided electricity. Um, As Ben mentioned, um, the cost of the poles and wires has pushed up the the cost of um, electricity so much that it's actually cheaper to (laughs) to boil a kettle in the outback with a diesel generator than it is in the city in the suburbs, which is quite ridiculous. So what we're seeing now is rooftop um, households still 15,000 a month are still putting rooftop solar on their. uh, still putting solar on their roofs um, each month around Australia, and businesses are too as well. There's one quarter of new installations are going on rooftops. This one's in Byron Bay. Um, it basically matches 80% of their energy needs. Um, there was a time when all manufacturing in Australia went overnight because of cheap electricity. Now they're finding the cheapest electricity during the daytime, which is a good thing. The next big thing will be storage. Um, this is Redflow. This is an Australian company. It's rolling out its products now. Um, It says that it's competitive with all of tariffs, particularly in Europe because of the way they're structured there. Battery storage, no one's quite too sure where it's going to be at parity, but it's getting there pretty soon. Urban Energy in Queensland is a big network operator, big, big poles and wires. It's already installing 100, much bigger. Um, storage um, installations in this, because it's cheaper than upgrading the network. And that's where storage will find its niche, both in homes, in businesses, and in networks, um, uh, or 50% of all demand requirements, which is a major um, move from centralised generation. Um, So this is the final slide. Um, So that's where the big change will happen. We've got 1.4 million homes now, more than 4 gigawatts, 15,000 new homes each month battery storage are coming down, costs are coming down fast. We've got new retailing models, um, we've got a lot of community ownership proposals, both for investment in solar farms. Um, up in the Northern Rivers where I'm living at the moment, um, there's a community-owned retailer which has been formed, which has completely different models of the current retailer, and that's been the model we're seeing in the US increasingly, where towns are buying back their grids, and also we're seeing in Europe, which has underpinned the, the generation there. Coast Fremantle and a half a dozen councils in Western New South Wales are looking to put large solar plants in their own.
2: And that was a rather abrupt end there to Giles Parkinson, journalist for Renew Economy online publication, and speaking at the at a recent community meeting at Sydney University, alongside Ben Caldercot. At the top of the show, he's an economist and uh, environmentalist. And then Blair
1: Palace. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855. I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done.
6: From grassroots to global, Earth Matters bringing you environmental issues with a social justice slant.
2: Forestry Tasmania has been overcutting the forest.
1: They've also overcommitted their contracts to and
0: We have farmers standing side by side with the alternative community.
1: 30 people were going to be arrested and 30 people were.
0: There will be a fight near you somewhere. A mine of some sort of coal seam gas. The important thing is to stand up and fight.
2: Tune in to Earth Matters on Sunday mornings at 11 or catch the repeat 6.30am Wednesdays or download the podcast on 3CR's website.
6: Now they're starting to realise that we actually did live in that total
1: harmony with the land.
2: And indeed, you're listening to 3CR. Finally tonight, the last piece is an interview I recorded with Stephen Bygrave yesterday by Skype. Stephen, as avid listeners of the Beyond Zero Emissions show would know, Stephen is the CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions and he's in Europe at the moment undertaking a series of meetings as you will hear. Um, The sound is a little bit wobbly on occasion but I, I hope it's quite listenable. I started off by asking Stephen what is his or Beyond Zero Emissions' goal in having these meetings?
0: Look, the meetings have really been around beyond zero and and myself sharing our work. We've now finished, as you know, a lot of our zero carbon Australia reports. they've got a lot of credibility in Australia. they also have a lot of um, transferability to other countries around the world, including Europe. I knew there was a lot of work being undertaken over here, but it's just been great to compare note it's been great to to compare. The different agendas but but what is very clear is beyond zero emissions is really leading uh, particularly on this sector by sector approach. Other countries have done some astounding work on a, on a national scale you know what what 's been really recognized i guess is our deep technical dives into each of the sectors and how each sector can can uh, move to zero emissions. Many of the other NGOs have zero net, net zero uh, goals or you know goals to push for a two degree uh, target at the the Paris uh, climate conference but I think you know we're we're still uh, on the leading edge in terms of pushing that beyond zero goal it's interesting when you actually speak to other practitioners how people interpret a zero carbon or a zero emission goal you know that there are different stances I guess in terms of you know is it net zero is it is it the two degree goal um, you know, I've been very clear to emphasise that our goal remains that, that two degrees is too high, mm. uh, that we're already seeing dangerous impacts of climate change at 0.8 degrees Celsius, pushing for a zero degree, which means going beyond that uh, two degree warming goal that's being pushed internationally. And, you know, there's talk about carbon neutrality. So I think what's interesting actually is how each of us is interpreting what a zero emissions goal is. And, and you, you'll find that beyond zero is certainly on the more radical um, side of that spectrum.
2: With the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, I, I understand from some of your articles they have launched an, an initiative around such themes as renewable en- energy, forests, agriculture, carbon capture and storage, biofuels, energy efficient buildings, and materials. Can you speak a little bit to uh, how your meeting with them went?
0: Yeah, look, they had a meeting of about 450 delegates in Montreux in Switzerland, and I was invited to uh, present Beyond Zero's work. Mm. Uh, They've got nine streams under what they're calling a low-carbon technology partnerships initiative, where businesses around the world are actually helping support. Um, ambitious reductions for the Paris conference. Business, I guess, recognises, certainly internationally, maybe not in Australia, they recognise that business will have to do its part, play its part to meet ambitious emission reductions, and that governments aren't going to be able to do all of that alone, and business will have to do some heavy lifting. It was fascinating actually to meet with some very progressive businesses who want to be uh, taking the lead. They see that this is inevitable they see that their business will have to adapt and um and and move with with the climate um agenda not to stand and and try and um hold back the flood or the tide as Mm -hmm. many businesses in australia are currently doing and uh they're working across nine different streams and beyond zero's work was very well received, particularly in the forestry and agriculture area, but also in the buildings area where our research can help business actually be part of this transition and and, and really capture the business opportunities and the commercial opportunities that are coming.
2: And I understand the WBCSD is actually going to put forward, uh, they're, they're uh, building their own targets ahead of the Paris Climate Talks.
0: So what they did in Montreux is actually looked across those nine streams. Uh, So it's agriculture, forestry, renewable energy materials, energy efficient buildings, um, smart grids and other things. Mm. Uh, And and what they're doing is they're they're setting their own targets to be presented at Paris in December and so they're, they're recognising that business has to play a role, as I mentioned before, and mm. they're seeing what is possible from a business side.
2: Do you think they're setting ambitious targets
0: or realistic targets? I think in the building space is probably where they're on track the most. They're setting targets of around a 50% reduction in energy use from buildings around the world by 2030. Mm. And that's actually consistent with Beyond Zero's research where, In our buildings plan, we identified a 53% reduction in in residential energy use and a 44% reduction in energy use in commercial retail buildings. So, in fact, I think their goals in the building space are ambitious but also achievable. And I think our building plan also demonstrates that that those targets are ambitious but also achievable. Um, Renewable energy. Again, quite ambitious targets, probably targets that go beyond what the IEA are projecting for their two degree warming scenario. So, so I guess what's interesting here is that these are just preliminary discussions at the moment, and they're, they're, they'll be talking more over the next few months about what they'll actually be announcing at Paris itself. They're meeting again in May, in late May, um, to talk about how they can refine these targets further. Certainly in the CCS material space, probably not as ambitious. That's the carbon
2: capture and storage space.
0: Yeah, yeah, carbon capture and storage. Obviously beyond zero emissions stance is that CCS is just a band-aid and an excuse for uh, continuing use of fossil fuels. Mm. Our stance is that CCS uh, isn't commercial, uh, indeed, the industry in Montreux is saying they still need billions of dollars of investment to make it commercial. Our stance is we can't wait. We've got existing renewable energy technologies, uh, existing energy efficiency technologies. We need to be moving now. We can't delay. So CCS was a bit um, consistent with what business has been saying around the world. You know, certainly not a position we agree with. And on the material cement space, again, there are some in industry, I think, that... that uh, you know, I'm not moving quickly enough in the material engineering space. Cement is a bit of a business as usual. Mm. Um position indeed there were questions raised about the sustainability of that uh, industry over time in a carbon constrained world just as people have been talking about you know whether we'll be burning fossil fuels uh you know under a carbon constrained world and obviously our view is that we won't be mm. indeed many now in mainstream are saying we won't be burning fossil fuels in another 30 40 50 years time
2: that's right we need to keep it in the ground that's right final question on the WBCSD. Did you get any sense about uh, whether businesses have the ability to push along government policy?
0: Yeah look they, they certainly see themselves as pushing government. They made a number of statements along the lines of they can't wait for government and uh, governments are often the slowest to move in this space. We've seen that throughout history where governments respond to what business and the community is, is wanting it reminded me, I guess, of the power of individuals and community to, to drive government, but also the power of um, communities working with leading businesses as we are doing with our Energy Freedom Initiative to push um, push governments along. And uh, it's unfortunate, really, that the governments are so slow in this space they're, they're not innovative, they're not dynamic, whereas businesses see the opportunities and, and go for it.
2: How did you go with your uh, with the meeting with the OECD and IEA?
0: Look, really positive. I met with both of those uh, institutions separately. Um, the OECD's been doing a lot of work on, on low-carbon transition, looking at policies that are currently in place which actually inhibit the transition. As you'll be aware, um, Many of our regulatory systems, our economic systems, our financial systems, our, even our labour market, ha- has really been framed in a world which, which was based on fossil fuel. And so the OED, OECD has actually been looking at many of the barriers, the policy barriers that exist across those different frameworks where they were established under a fossil fuel-based economy and now are inhibiting the, 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 the shift so, they've been doing a lot of work in this space um, through their roundtable on sustainable development. But they're very interested in the work that Beyond Zero done, laying out the technical pathway, the economic pathway, and then how that might be supported by different policies. Um, so, they actually think our model is one that they uh, can further develop in an OECD context. And they obviously need the support of their member governments or the member country governments to to pursue this agenda, but they see that coming. So the meeting with the IEA, uh, we talked a lot about um, the renewable energy targets, um, the different work that the IEA is doing on technology pathways under a two-degree warming world. Um, As you know, they do the World Energy Outlook and they um, have different scenarios, a business as usual, Energy scenario and world scenario, and then more ambitious scenarios. Um, they were very encouraged by the work we've been doing on energy efficiency in the building space. Um, they were really uh, taken by the energy freedom concept. They love the way that we've linked both the energy efficiency story. And the energy and the renewable energy story, uh, they really taken by the energy freedom concept. Um, they, they love the way it's linking renewable energy and energy efficiency. Energy efficiency remains a difficult concept to sell. Um, it's about saving uh, energy as opposed to building bright sparkly shiny things. but, but the energy freedom very inspiring and, and linking those two stories, which are often seen quite separately. And uh, they, they were also struck by what's happening in Australia, rolling back all of our renewable energy policy and programs, or Renewable Energy Target. Um, and they, they reminded me, I guess, of the, of the power of and, and the strength of a long-term renewable energy target, much more powerful, sending signals for investment than perhaps uh, shorter-term mechanisms like feed-in tariffs. Feed-in tariffs play an, an incredibly important role but having that long-term price signal for investment under a renewable energy target they, they said is, the, is certainly the better policy uh, for the long term. Mm, but and, they'd be talking uh, to the uh, you know, converted
2: saying that to you wouldn't they? Saying, they need to be telling that to
0: Abbott. Oh that's right. That Yeah that's right. Look uh, I, I guess I guess uh, they weren't trying to convince me. They were just saying how incredibly important the renewable energy target is in Mm. Australia.
2: And so what was your impression of uh, the Europe – I mean, clearly that was one of them – but the Europeans' perspective on uh, the Australian position in the last few years?
0: Yeah, look, they're disappointed, actually, um, uh, what's currently unfolding in Australia, as as are we, obviously – They see that uh, Australia is an important leader in the world, that Australia has had very important policies and programs supporting action on climate change and energy efficiency and renewables, and that uh, it's really disheartening, actually, to see what's unfolding. Um, Europe continues to be a leader, though, in this space as well. They are currently going through some uh, reforms to the emissions trading scheme, which will strengthen that scheme. Um, they've still got a price on carbon, albeit very low at the moment because of the over-allocation of permits um, to, to liable parties um, in the early stages of the scheme they've got positions to withdraw some of those uh, excess permits and they'll also be putting in a mechanism to set, I guess, a, a longer-term price signal so the industry will be able to respond. So, but, but certainly dis- they quite very disheartened in what's happening in Australia. Other meetings I had last week were with some other NGOs and groups doing zero-carbon research. So I met with them in London I met with uh, Track Zero, um, who are doing work on trying to push for a zero goal in, in the Paris meetings mm. end of the year. I met with Idri, which is a French NGO. They've been leading this deep decarbonisation work in 16 countries around the world. I met with the Tyndall Institute, who've been leading the mm. science on and carbon budget work. Um, Greenpeace UK met with Zero Carbon Britain, a, a group similar to us. Uh, in, they've been doing re, reports on how to move to zero emissions in, in Britain, and um, also with the Grantham Institute and uh, a group called MAPS, who are doing work with Peru, Chile, uh, Brazil, and and, uh, and um, some other countries in South America. So a lot of uh, a lot of interest in in sharing knowledge, and collaborating, and 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 bringing our work together in a in a holistic way, so that we can form. Things at a global level, not just at a national level. Mm. I met with the European Commission as well in Brussels on Wednesday, and uh, also with the head of uh, Can Europe, the NGO that coordinates, similar to to Can Australia, though very interested in our work as well. The European Commission, they we present we presented our work again to them, and uh, they they love our. I think it's a very ambitious but, but also well thought out plans and uh, th- they're certainly going to take away some of the information that I presented there. Coming up this week, I'm presenting tomorrow, which is Monday, Europe time, mm-hmm. um, to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change in Bonn. They have their secretariat here. Uh, they support all of the work in, in the United Nations uh, conferences they 're very influ- influential behind the scenes christine Christina Fergueris, as you know, mm. is their executive director mm. and uh, do, do, doing it doing a seminar to staff so that that should go very well then i 'm meeting with the Stockholm Environment Institute uh, and also a number of zero carbon organizations based in Oslo um, both stockholm both uh, Sweden and Norway continue to be. <laughs> As, uh, you know, northern countries, Scandinavian countries always are, progressive mm. and leading a lot of this work in Europe as well.
2: What's the sense of urgency that you're you're um, picking up from these European counterparts?
0: Yeah, every, everyone recognises that Paris is, is critical. Um, no one wants it to be a repeat of Copenhagen. Um, The French government is doing everything they can, meetings uh, every day uh, with influential organisations and governments. Um, I met with one of the French uh, government representatives uh, in Montreux who was there to talk to the bigger business group. He, you know, he's confident that... um, Things are moving. There's a lot of talk about what the legal framework, the basis of the legal framework, to be announced at Paris is. Um, you know what different countries will live with. I don't think anyone, including the US and China, want to repeat of what happened in Copenhagen. So expectations mm-hmm. that is high. Uh, certainly, the announcement by the US and China last year at the G G20 sort of uh, set set the set a lot of the expectations for what what is hoping to be achieved. I I guess the next critical step is the INDCs to be announced by individual countries. These are the individual, nationally uh, determined um, contributions that each country has to submit to the UN by June. Australia's got a task force um, determined what its target will be post 2020. Uh, we've had the Climate Change Authority in Australia say that a target of, of 40% is possible for Australia. Let's see what the government uh, currently announces. But but uh, what is what is widely thought in Europe is that the INDCs will not get us to the two degree goal. So there'll be need for for our modelling, the modelling of other zero. Carbon groups and others to actually show how we can actually get to uh, two degrees, but not just two degrees beyond two degrees, which is what we continue to push for.
2: Mm. Yeah, that it's not actually these aren't theoretical frameworks. They're, they are they can be realistic targets if people put their shoulders to the to the wheel.
0: Yeah, and I think what our work does is lays out um, step by step what can be done sector by sector, not just setting targets but actually laying out the different steps that can be taken in each of the sectors to get us there and I think that's what's, um, that's what's really valuable with our work.
2: Have you got any uh, recommendations that you can uh, uh, put to us and to the listener, any action they can take so they, they can get involved?
0: Yes, yeah, certainly uh, we're building a movement uh, through through Twitter, so hashtag ZeroParis Um, to build support from um, individuals around the world and and certainly in Australia to push for a zero goal in pass. So hashtag zero Paris. That obviously will drive some action, get some, uh, you know, some momentum behind a zero goal. Look, it can be very, you know, even I feel, you know, this is a hard slog. Uh, It really is. Every day I wake up and think, you know, um, we've got a long way to go. Well, we've got to keep trying, you know. What I keep reminding people is, you know, this is our last chance. If we want a world that's going to be habitable in another 100 years, we've got to give it our best shot. Do you feel like
2: the momentum is building leading up to December to the Paris Climate Summit?
0: Oh, look, definitely. There's a whole range of um, important meetings, uh, important uh, decisions to be made in the coming months. We've got the June intersessional meetings in Bonn. Uh, Coming up um, very very soon, the World Business Council meetings are are also building momentum. There's there's uh, there's major economy forum meetings uh, happening in in Washington just a couple of weeks ago. Pretty much every international meeting now has this on the agenda, Hmm. and uh, so so things are really moving. Um, You know, Paris is going to be a very important. Conference, um, you know, some thirty thousand people are going to be descending on Paris, mm. uh, and hopefully um, that will also send a, a very, very strong signal to governments that they can't they can't stuff stuff this one up.
2: Yeah, and that was Stephen Bygrave, from the CEO from Beyond Zero Emissions. Um, which you can find online at bze.org.au and there's also free downloadable reports of uh, the research that Stephen mentioned at several points there. I can only imagine that uh, Stephen was somewhat uh, under-exaggerating when he said the Europeans were disappointed at the regressive actions the Liberal government has taken over the last few years in relation to climate change. I would think that they'd be absolutely gobsmacked. But there you go. So if you want to follow Stephen in general and uh, his exploits in Europe in particular, he can be found on Twitter on uh, hashtag StephenBZE. Um, the S and the BZE are capitalised. I'm not sure if that makes a difference on Twitter. But uh, that's another show for to this week. We'll see you hopefully again next week at 5 o'clock. Thanks very much to the gang for all the hard work that it takes to put this together. That's Vivian Langford, the radio produce, producer and interviewer extraordinaire. Teddy for promos, uh, Glenn for editing, Miwa and Roger for just all the good general help.